From WBOI Studios in Fort Wayne, this is the I Am Immigrant, and I am Ahmed Abdelmajid. I am a Palestinian immigrant who has been donning the title of immigrant for the past 24 years of my life. I am interested in conversations around the immigrant experience, conversation that we seem to be not having or we seem to be not knowing how to have. For this podcast series, I'm hoping that we have conversations with different immigrants about all that it entails to be an immigrant. Well, hey there again. Uh, this is Ahmed Abdelmajid, host and creator of The Iron Immigrant. And I'm Katie Anderson, producer of The Iron Immigrant. We have a new episode for you today featuring Dr. Max Montesino, who is originally from the Dominican Republic, and uh, he's just a really interesting person to talk to. Professor Montesino, he's, he's just a, a great person all around to just sit and have a nice cup of coffee and chat with a very experienced, uh, worldly person uh, who's, uh, who's made uh, a life for himself and his family in, in Fort Wayne and taught generations upon generations uh, with the Indiana Purdue Fort Wayne and now Purdue Fort Wayne system. Uh, he has a lot of great insight on the, the race relations that we, we are facing in our country these days and a lot of discussions from his experiences uh, as an immigrant from the Dominican Republic to the United States. I really enjoyed that conversation. Learned a lot from him. I really did too. So let's take a listen to your conversation with Max. Today we have a good friend, Max Montesino. Max, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Gracias. All right, we appreciate you being here, but we get the podcast usually started with a quick question. When I called you and asked you to be on the show, you had the uh, opportunity to say no, but you said yes, and here you are. So I'm wondering, why are you joining us on the show today? Fantastic. Uh, I think um, every immigrant has a story that is important to be told. So the moment I heard that you were interested in my I, I said yes. Fantastic, and we're glad to have you here. So the typical question that, you know, we get all the time as immigrants is, where are you from? So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where do you come from? How long have you been in the U.S. and what do you do? Yes, I've been in the United States for the last 30 years. I come from the Dominican Republic, which is the eastern part of the Hispaniola Island in the Caribbean. There is not that much snow down there <laughs> at this moment. <laughs> so that's, that's where I come from. Um, been in the United States for the last 30 years, as I said, and most of them in the Midwest. Uh, I am not the typical immigrant from the Dominican Republic because they usually come to the East Coast. Uh, there's a huge uh, population of Dominicans in New York City, New Jersey, hmm. and Connecticut and, and that area. But I came to the Midwest uh, originally as a student, as a graduate student, and then stay around. So... Why the attraction for uh, Dominican Republic natives? Uh, how would you? What would you say, Dominican Republicans? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what, what, I'm actually I'm stumped on that one now. I don't know how how to how do you refer to someone from the Dominican Republic? There are many Dominicans that began Dominicans. to immigrate yes. to the Dominic <laughs> to the to the United States in uh, in the 50s, 1950s, uh -huh. when uh, New York City needed uh, manpower. Okay. And that first wave of immigrant made a significant uh, contribution to bringing the rest with them, the relatives. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
I can tell you that uh, there are portions of the city of New York that um, have enormous proportion of Dominican population. Mm-hmm. So, and then they began to migrate to other states, uh, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Massachusetts. But the drive was originally finding jobs in New York City. I see. Yep. So if I want a good cup of Dominican coffee, yes. I have to go to New you York. You go to Washington Heights in New York City. Washington Heights. I had and a... then you will <laughs> see not only the coffee, but the plantain. Uh-huh. You will see the, the newspaper of that day. And you will see on the streets of Washington High people from your hometown that you haven't seen in 40 years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, in I, my case, 40 yeah. years. Yeah. I had a, a colleague that used to always go to the Dominican Republic for um, vacation with his family and brings me back local coffee beans. And it was oh, yeah. one of the most fantastic Fantastic, I've fantastic. Had. It's, um, it's great. Uh, great organic coffee. Yeah. Fantastic mountains. I, yeah, it's flavorful and it's less acidic than most other yes. coffee that I've had. Tell me about it. I grew up under the tree. Yeah? yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about your upbringing, uh, the Dominican Republic. There later. are three things that are related to my upbringing. Yeah. Coffee, rice, okay. and plantain. <laughs> <laughs> I actually was born and raised in a rural village of the Cibao Valley in the Dominican Republic, which is in the northern part of the island, mm-hmm. in a very small town close to the city of Santiago. Santiago is the second largest city in the Dominican Republic. Relatively close to the border with Haiti, northwest, by the Yaque River, which is the biggest river on that island, and a very fertile valley, fantastic upbringing, seven siblings. Mm -hmm. I was actually raised by the village. Were you a farming family? My, My family was a farming family, but I... And I also study a little bit of agriculture early in life, but myself was not a farmer. Mm-hmm. I was not a fall farmer. And you said you came to the Midwest for graduate studies. So what brought you? Uh, uh, I am one of those immigrants that have lived half of his life outside of the United States and half of his life here. Mm-hmm. I, I like to think that uh, I am an American by choice with a strong foreign background. I came originally to the University of Wisconsin, then went to Iowa State University, and finally finished my last degree at uh, Western Michigan University. You had all the cold places. I mean, you did the whole thing wrong coming from there. Not only that, I was born between 85 and 95 degrees. So, um, and actually, I met the snow for the first time in, in Wisconsin. Uh-huh. Um, and then spent now 25 years in Fort Wayne, Indiana. 25 years in yeah. Fort Wayne. So I came originally as a graduate student and gradually kept going, pursue my master's degree, then pursue my, my doctorate degree, and then came to Purdue University, Fort Wayne, to teach. The name was IPFW then. Uh-huh. And basically have raised my children here in Fort Wayne. But the original drive was to pursue graduate studies. Where is that drive coming from? The drive to, one, leave home, a place that you're comfortable with and you have a strong ties to, to come and not only succeed with a college degree, but with two postgraduate degrees, a master's and a PhD. Where is that drive coming from? Uh, It's the drive of every immigrant. Mm. Uh, You hear about the American dream. Yeah. But the American dream is a very universal dream. Yeah. (laughs) Um, All of us pursue a dream 
and all of us come for different reasons, uh, but pursuing the same the same dream. In my case, I didn't have uh, the possibility of pursuing a degree in the area that I wanted back in the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. So I did very well as a student and obtained a, a scholarship to come to the United States mm-hmm. to study organizational behavior and pursue a, a two degrees in that area. And I've been teaching in that particular area here. My program at uh, Purdue Fort Wayne is called Organizational Leadership. Organizational Leadership. And that's what I teach. Okay. And I do want to talk about that a little bit, but I want to talk about a couple of other things first, and then we'll get back to the organizational leadership. In Dominican Republic, the native language is Spanish. Spanish. Yeah. Spanish. So you mentioned that you are an American citizen with a strong connection to the Dominican Republic. So Absolutely. that brings us to the question of how do you identify yourself with multiple identities You know that we all have? Uh, I like to think of myself as an American, as I said, with strong uh, foreign background, as a Latino. Mm-hmm as a member of the Latino population in the United States. And by that, I mean, I love this country. I love my country of origin. I love the region where I come. I love the culture that I belong to. I love the language, my first language. And I don't know if you have noticed that I have an accent. No. No, you haven't. (laughs) Um, Being a Latino means that you carry with you all the cultural background of Latin America Uh, In Latin America, we not only speak Spanish, we speak Portuguese, we speak French, we speak uh, English and and thousands of native languages. But uh, Spanish is the the main language because Mm. of the whole history of colonization in in the region and provides another anchor of identity that is very important. It's a beautiful language and it's part of our pride. And well, that defines me as a person. I am a Latino Mm -hmm. and I am uh, an American. How much of that, you said that your children were brought up in Fort Wayne. They are Hoosiers. They're Hoosiers. Yeah, that's their identity. Well, and my question to you as someone who's gone through the transition, I mean, you grew up in the Dominican Republic and then now your children grew up here. How much of your culture, your language and all that did you try to instill in your children and kind of your relationship with that? I mean... I struggle with my kids to teach them Arabic language and, and you know, to appreciate about the language. It. So I'm, I'm interested in your feelings around that, with your children not having the, the same yeah. experiences yeah. you have. Uh, my family is a reflection of exactly the immigrant experience. Uh, I myself, I came to the United States first with a visa student, went back to the Dominican Republic, came back to the United States with a tourist visa, mm-hmm. went back to the Dominican Republic, came back to the United States with another student visa. Then through my wife, I got my permanent residency, the green card, and then became a, an American citizen. So I have gone through the whole uh, process of becoming from an outsider to an American. My family reflects very much that. My wife uh, is, like me, a native-born Dominican and American by choice. Mm -hmm. My first son was born in the Dominican Republic, but he moved with us to the United States when he was seven. Okay. And my daughter was born in the United States. Because my son went to preschool in the Dominican Republic, he keeps a better Spanish than my daughter mm. because he was actually, he became literate in Spanish before becoming literate in English. He grew up with the language yeah. for those formative At least years, those first those seven first years. years. 
but my daughter became literate in the United States. Okay. So everything, she was born here, she has grown here. And that is a challenge for us to keep the tradition, to keep the language, to keep that part of our cultural identity. But we've been doing well. I have taken them back to the Dominican Republic as much as I can. They've met their relatives. I still have brothers and sisters down in the Dominican Republic. My parents were alive when my children were growing up. So we kept that connection and they listen to our music. They eat our food. They like our tradition, our literature. I made my effort at instilling in them that part of their own background through me, through mm -hmm. my, me and my wife. And it is a struggle because, for example, Dominicans in New York City, uh, they have neighborhood schools that are populated by peers that look like them mm -hmm. and speak Spanglish back yeah. and forth. <laughs> and it's a lot easier for the children of my friends who live in New York City to actually keep connected to the Dominican Republic. They mm -hmm. have radio stations in Spanish. They have newspapers in Spanish. And not only in Spanish, but from the Dominican Republic. Okay. So yeah. it is easier for my friends living in New York City to keep those traditions and raise their children well connected to the DR than it was for us in the middle of the Midwest with the snow. And my children were the, among the few Spanish speakers in their own schools. And that makes a little bit more difficult. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine that that is your case, my friend. It's, I mean, just because I appreciate the Arabic language so much and having grown up with it, I try to teach it to them, to, to my children, but I feel a sense of loss or as a friend put it before, a sense of grief a little bit yes. on the fact that they won't get to appreciate it as much as I do because of, you know, it's funny because I didn't really get to appreciate the Arabic language until I moved out of, of, the, of, the, of, region. The, of the region, you know, yeah. and uh, realizing what a beautiful language it is, and trying to pass that on to my kids. And by uh, the way, your language, uh, we have in our language so much of yours, my there, friend. There is, there is a lot of uh, words that are Arabic origin in the Spanish language. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, dating back to the years in... Uh, in Spain. In Spain. Morocco yeah. and all of that. Yeah, yeah the, the world is uh, smaller than we give it credit for. A sometimes. lot smaller. <laughs> so there is that emotional tension a little bit of seeing the kids not appreciating, not that they don't want to appreciate the culture that you grew up in or came from, but just because of their experiences, they won't get to appreciate it as much as you do. Uh, and I think there's an added thing to it that you talk about Dominicans' concentrations in New York, for example, and you're here in the Midwest, and the thought of, I j I'm just going to pick up and go live in New York, that's the closest thing to home for me. Did that cross your mind? Uh, actually not, because okay. I, <laughs> in my mind, yes, but not as a plan, because I love so much my teaching career here mm -hmm. in the Midwest that I say, hey, I will, I will survive and I will do whatever I, I can to keep those connections and make sure that not only my children don't lose it, but I don't lose it. Mm -hmm. And that's where the I become we. Very good. And I would like to address that, that part of the, of the conjugation. Yeah, yeah I'm uh, interested in hearing that. Because, for example, when I came, I was a Dominican in the United States. Slowly and with the passage of time, I have become a Latino in the United States. 
And the family that I no longer have, because it is on the island, has been somehow transformed in my new family of fellows from other Latin American countries. For example, in Fort Wayne, I found a Latino community made up of Mexicans, Guatemalans, and other Central Americans, South mm -hmm. Americans, and people from some other parts of the Caribbean, like uh, Puerto Ricans, Cubans. Uh, we have a huge population of Salvadorians, Hondurans, Colombians, Peruvians, Chileans, Brazilians, and I found my niche there. So let me ask about that. You found your niche with Latino. So I guess for me to relate to that is I'm Palestinian, but we have Sudanese, we have Saudi, we have Lebanese, Syrian, all Arabic speaking, share similar culture and found that connection with them. But for you as a Spanish speaker, do you feel frustrated with majority culture looking at you as Mexican? Not that there's anything wrong with being Mexican, yeah. but, you know, you're... I've you're, never been to Mexico, but I've been called Mexican many times. Many times, because, you know, the, the look, the accent, the fact that you speak Spanish, and the default image of someone who yeah. fits that profile is thinking of Mexican. So I guess what I'm trying to ask is, is it out of frustration with the view that you went with I'm Latino and not insisting on being from the Dominican Republic. From a particular country, yeah. Or is it more that you found strength in numbers and more ease for the transition? It's, it's both. I have enjoyed um, finding friendship, finding camaraderie, finding people that have uh, similar objectives in life and people that fight for the same fight that mm -hmm. I want to fight. Which is in that word. <laughs> And that, that helps me. Uh, for example, many, many of us from the Latin American region find ourselves here facing political situations that are not that favorable, finding opportunities that are not always there in a way they should be. And some of us uh, have assumed that uh, that's a fight that we have to fight. And that's when I became we and things became a lot better. Is it a fight for... Equal rights and equal treatment. Absolutely. And you've been here for 30 years. So one, how has that fight changed over the past 30 years, to the better or the worse? And two, how exhausted are you? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, at the beginning, when I was a graduate student, I wasn't that much involved. Mm -hmm. um, my own experience was not uh, sharp enough to actually be there. But later, I became more aware of the situation. I began to be part of the networks that were addressing the particular situation of Latinos in the United States. And I decided to become an advocate for immigration reform. And the distance between advocacy and political participation is very tenuous. Mm -hmm. You're an advocate, but suddenly, boom, you are participating in politics, even if you didn't want. I am not a politician. I am not a political scientist. I am not a candidate for anything. But suddenly, I find myself participating in the political networks that there are more political than advocacy by inertia. Boom, mm. you get there. You, yeah. And that then transforms the experience into something that is different and more meaningful. 
and you transcend the boundaries of your own ethnic group or cultural group or whatever you want to call it, to them embrace the fight of many people. To give you an example, I became involved with the Hispanic Leadership Coalition of Northeast mm -hmm. Indiana, and I have even presided twice that organization. Then we decided that um, many of us have so much in common with the other communities in our city and in our region. With immigrant experience. Minority or immigrant. Immigrant experience, yeah, minorities, immigrants, whatever. We decided to form the Multicultural Council of Fort Wayne mm -hmm. with our friends and colleagues and fellows from Africa, from the Middle East, uh, from Burma, Myanmar, mm -hmm. from many other places. And now I am a member of a multiplicity of networks that makes that we yeah. even stronger and a lot better. It's amazing. I mean, just to kind of comment on that point real quick, you mentioned Middle East, Burma, North African, Latino. It's just amazing. And I want people out there who are, who are listening, who think of Northeast Indiana as just big farms and not a whole lot of diversity. It's amazing you, how, you get the map. <laughs> how much diversity we have in our city of Fort Wayne. And that's one of the uh, reasons it attracted me and my family to call it home. So your growth over those 30 years from the perspective of I'm just a grad student to now an American citizen from a Dominican to a Latino, from a Latino part of a minority and group, that has progressed over time. And now you, you are a big voice in our community and you are a huge advocate in our community for understanding and for conversation. I'm interested in the choice of the word fight. And I can fully understand where it's coming <laughs> from, but I want to elaborate a little more on the word fight because some could use the word conversation or discussion, but even in the way you that say the word, there. Yeah. even in the way you say the word, there's a lot of passion that comes from it. And I want our listeners to get a glimpse into why you use that word and what does that represent? I've been interested in educating the immigrant communities about the American culture and vice versa. I am been very interested in trying to bridge the gaps of understanding between those of us that were born and raised someplace else or have some deep connection to someplace else and our fellow Americans uh, in many ways. But there is a point at which when you become an advocate, and by the way, I've been doing all the rest through my teaching, through my civil participation and, and mm -hmm. all of that. But when you become an advocate for, for example, a cause, you use all those terms that you use, conversation, dialogue, understanding, and, and fight. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, in the particular case of immigration reform, we are way beyond dialogue, way beyond conversation, and, and it's a fight. And it's a fight that have transcended the civil boundary to a political one. And it seemed that it no longer will go back to just uh, let's have a conversation. What's at stake for you personally in that fight? Personally uh, is my community. Okay. Personally is my people. Personally is what I am. But that's where the I ends and the we begins. Mm -hmm. Uh, as I would like to say, because at stake is the destiny of so many people. At stake is what's going to happen to the entire country. At stake is the future of the United States. By 2050, 
the makeup of our population will be so different from what it is now. We'll become a majority-minority country. For example, uh, and the contribution that all of us bring to the table apparently is being minimized by some segments of the population. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, there is a fight to be fought. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's something that we, and by we, I mean members of the immigrant community or minority, uh, it's almost a gut feeling, this struggle or this fight or conversation or dialogue, uh, which is the main reason why we're having this podcast. Sure. <laughs> it's not you or me coming and saying, this is the way people should be and base it on where I grew up and what faith I have or what language I speak, but more of the let's appreciate each other's differences and let's appreciate what differences bring to the table. Exactly. As we try and advance ourselves as a society, as a community, even as, as humans, because to neglect all the lessons learned from your upbringing and just saying, I'm going to put all those aside and I'm going to go into the mainstream, whatever that mainstream is, we lose a lot as a community. Of course. And that leads me to uh, a little bit of discussion about your line of work. You were interested as a student and you went to grad school and you're teaching about organizational leadership. Can you tell us a little bit about what interests you in that? And what are you looking into? I've been um, in the area of education for a long time. Um, back in the Dominican Republic, I used to work in rural development programs okay. in small villages in, in the DR. And I've been interested in education for, for, for a long time. So I then became a corporate trainer helping business organizations to develop their human resources. And that got me to graduate school in that particular mm. area. Then when I was precisely finishing my dissertation, this place called Indiana University, Purdue University, Fort Wayne, then <laughs> attracted me in that they had this program called Organizational Leadership and Supervision then. Okay. Uh, by the way, my first question was, is this Indiana University <laughs> or Purdue University? What, what is it? I'm confused. Because I, 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 I wasn't familiar with the, with the combination. And then when I was interviewed and then offered the, the opportunity to come, I found myself doing exactly what I've been waiting to do in a long time, helping new generations of leaders, but not only for business, leaders in government, nonprofit, uh, business, etc., prepare for those business leadership roles that they mm -hmm. would have, uh, regardless of the type of organization. That's in a professional uh, realm. That was uh, my interest Mm -hmm. And I did have a lot of opportunities to go some other places, but uh, the nature of the program, the connection with my students, and, and I decided to fight inside, I'm using again the word, <laughs> uh, inside uh, my, my university, fight in the sense that, for example, we have expanded the program. Mm -hmm. We got the program to be from offering only undergraduate degree. We now have a master's degree. So I decided to spend my, my energy there and then became the community connections that then made me to set roots in the area in Fort Wayne. And you just had a book uh, recently published. What, well, when you were talking about keeping your connection with your culture, your language, etc., yeah, I just recently published a book in Spanish. Very nice. All right. yep. Can you tell us a little bit about it? And what, yeah, what? yeah. I began to write this book in Spanish. 
with the purpose of publishing for the Spanish market in Latin America and elsewhere. But uh, the project became uh, a little bit more complicated than what I thought. And rather than writing about the organizational behavior of Latinos in general, mm -hmm. I decided to finish the book writing only about the Latinos that I know the most, the Dominicans. <laughs> the Dominicans. Yeah. <laughs> so the book is called, uh, translating it from Spanish, is a portrait of the Dominican in the organizational context. Okay. And the subtitle is The Impact of Culture on Managerial Behavior. Because I analyze uh, precisely what is the impact of national culture in the way that uh, leaders behave. And uh, my next step in that process will be to actually expand that inquiry to the rest of Latin America. And this time I will do it in both languages, Spanish and English. See, I find that fascinating because I think in a lot of professional settings, we like to think that as a professional, I put culture and cultural issues aside and I'm focusing at the task at hand. While, you know, without even having to put it out, like wear your culture on your sleeve, it's still impacting how you interact with the organization, you, how you interact with the leaders. So I, I find that fascinating. And I'm hoping that in your work and, and scholarship, you can talk some more about that, because I think as we get more and more global and as leaders deal with more diverse backgrounds and issues, there are some universalities, I'm assuming, in various cultures and how to look. Yeah, there are there are similarities in terms of values, norms, and assumptions, but there is a lot of diversity out there. Mm -hmm. uh, we Americans are very similar to many other people and very different and, from many other people. And you can take one organizational dimension at a time and analyze that. For example, this semester I have, I'm teaching a class about gender and diversity in management. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're analyzing, uh, comparing and contrasting people from the Confucian culture region of the world, the Chinese, the Taiwanese, mm -hmm. and the uh, Koreans, Japanese, and, and with the uh, Americans, for example. Mm -hmm. And actually, very soon my student will finish that project, and they are having fun enjoying, hey, we are very similar to the Chinese in this term, mm -hmm. but we're so different from them in this other dimension. So it makes sense to understand those similarities and differences. Not only because of the, the fact that uh, Americans are everywhere and need to understand both diplomatically for developmental and for commercial efforts mm -hmm. in, in many other countries, but also our society is, is as it's multicultural diverse. as you can imagine. And although the acculturation that all of us go through when we engage in another culture that is strong and it's a very important pulling force, there is a push in mm -hmm. the direction of the culture or origin. And the more we understand those similarities and differences, the better we become as leaders. Absolutely. And that's exactly the point of, for example, of the point of my book. And and that's uh, amazing and interesting work. I can't wait for the uh, English version so I can, my, my Spanish is Hola. non-existing. <laughs> well, I, I can get by with, yeah. uh, you know, como estas, muy yeah. bien, just a few words here yep. and there too. And the ones that we make, have in make, common. <laughs> make a big fool yeah. of myself. But, you know, it, that concept and discussion about how culture relates to organization and leadership, 
um, it touches home for me personally because one of the driving forces behind my work in general in the community with regards to immigrant, immigrant experiences and things like that uh, was actually a work experience. And I feel comfortable sharing that on the air because I've asked for permission from the person who this interaction happened with and she's good with. But I use that as a springboard for all this work and reasons to interview different immigrants. And, and the story goes in about four years ago when we going through our latest cycle of elections and the uh, rhetoric regarding Muslims and immigrants and Palestinians and all that was heated up, was very heated. And we've seen an ugly side of our American society or culture that to me personally, and many others like me and like yourself, it, it touches home in a completely different way. Absolutely. And I'm a vocal person. I wrote for the newspaper, my blog, on Facebook, on social media, and things like that. But as a leader within the college that I work in, it struck me that no one came and knocked on my office and said, Ahmed, how are you? And so that thought stuck with me, not as, oh, everybody hates me. Oh, I don't, you know, I feel so alone. I have very good relationships with all my colleagues and comfortable and all that. But what is it in our work culture, whether specific to the college that I work with or work culture in general, has prevented someone from coming and talking about something personal. Because, I mean, I didn't work in the Arab world, but growing up and seeing my dad and whatever, and my mom, I understood that, you know, these things we talk about. Oh, yeah. So I went to my dean and I said to her at the time, it's not that I'm, you know, feeling anything other than as a leader, I want to address this issue. Why hasn't anyone come and ask me, Ahmed, how are you doing? Knowing, you know, the situation. No, no, what is going on? And and she struck me with the, uh, she's processing things. She's a very pragmatic person, processes things. And she says, uh, you know, come to think of it, I didn't ask you how you're doing. And I'm like, well, yeah, you did. Mm-hmm. I'm an assistant you, dean you, and you she's like, them. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, you didn't ask me how I'm doing. And we talked a little more about it. And she threw out there, and again, genuine in uh, in all the conversation, she said, I think it's probably because you don't look that way. The uh, Because slight accent, I'm fair skin and whatever, I don't have a lot of the experiences that you have yeah. as yeah. darker skin. The moment I open skin. my mouth, people know that this accent is Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where a lot of this, the I and immigrant came from, is that, you know, we assimilate, we culture, we become Americans, but part of the beauty of being an American is all the different and various experiences we bring to the world. So just that when I read about your book coming out about the work culture and leadership culture, I'm like, I wonder if there's some personal story similar to mine that has led you to that. In my case, uh, yeah, there, there are there are some stories, but it has been more of a professional interest than the validation of any individual experience. But yes, for example, when we came for the first time as a family to the United States, I have, as I said, I have come three times individually as a person. Uh, But then uh, when we moved my wife and my two children to Kalamazoo, Michigan, Mm -hmm. and uh, we, all this weather and the snow and the cold and (laughs) coming from the tropics and from a very hot island. Mm-hmm. And we felt the typical isolation that you would feel in when you're transplanted from one very warm, collectivistic, highly expressive culture like Latin American cultures are to a more individualistic, more reserved, mm-hmm. more 
respecting privacy as yeah. the American culture is. The first that actually hit us was how much we suffer because we didn't know even the name of our neighbors mm -hmm. and how profoundly wrong we felt. But we could, we didn't dare to go and knock at the door because we, we didn't know whether we would offend them. And then my wife and I, because we grew up within the context of the same culture, uh -huh. and by then I was already a student of intercultural communication. So I knew what was going on, <laughs> but, but still, still personally, you felt it because different. culture is something that is back here in your values, your norms, your assumptions, in a way that you realize the existence of it when you are exposed to the situation, not when you read about it. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was a, a, quite an experience for us. Uh, but guess what happened with the passage of time? I no longer care. <laughs> Doesn't bother us. Is, is that a good or a bad thing? Well, it's it, it's or it's is both. it neither? Okay. It's both <laughs> because somehow I learned uh -huh. that those are the norms. You know, I've I've been here for 24 years and I've learned those norms, but there's still somewhat of a of a talk. Maybe I feel it more if someone is of an Arab background and they're not practicing it the way that I assume they should. Like, you know, you didn't ask me to come over to your house to have, a, you know, some tea or for dinner or whatever. What's wrong with you or something like that? Yeah. But it, there's still that little bit of tug at yep. you. That, yep. That yep. You... Yep. And, and you go from one cultural dimension to the other and they become organizational behavior dimension. I see. Uh, for example, probably not too many people knock at your door, Ahmed. Mm-hmm. Not only because they probably thought that you didn't fit the bill, but because they say, probably I cannot, I don't want to disturb Ahmed mm -hmm. with even the thought. But that's not yeah. how our mental programming is back home. Yeah. In that, no, no, there, you, you go, you knock at the door and you show your appreciation or your concern or whatever, mm -hmm. because those are uh, cultures that are a lot more expressive, more emotional expressive than, than others. And that's how you translate a cultural dimension in the culture at large to an organizational behavior dimension, then they will have an impact on the way people interact and with the way in which people lead or follow and coexist mm -hmm. in an organization. And, and sometimes there are disturbances there. And we know that harassment, discrimination, et cetera, are also rooted in those cultural mm -hmm. uh, values. Yeah. One of the things that I learned as I grew as a professional, when I first started, there was a pharmacist that I worked with who was an older gentleman at that time, too. And he said, you leave work at work and home at home. Yeah. And as I grew in my profession as a pharmacist yep. and then as yep. an academic, I realized that there's no way that you can do that. There is no way that you can based <laughs> on our cultural programming. Uh -huh. But um, the Northern European Protestant relational mental model establishes that, and by virtue of the American connection with that original cultural background, has been part of the American way of way of life, way of culture in general. That is value, and the high emphasis on, on privacy versus public behavior mm -hmm. is part of it. But uh, it goes way way back. For example, we have many of those values and traditions and norms from Southern Europe that our uh, those countries that 
appear after the disintegration of the Roman Empire mm -hmm. brought to Latin America. Spain, Portugal, France were responsible for uh, the colonization yeah. of 90% of Latin America. And we, get, we got all of that. Mm -hmm. Different from the Northern Europe tradition that actually got to North America and so forth. Yeah, it's fascinating. And a, and a point that you kind of point within the point that you were discussing is that a lot of times when we think of culture, we think of it as that set of behavior that's different than what ours are. And when you're in the majority culture here in the U.S., uh, white, Christian, you seem to, or at least my interactions, not understand that you're a culture in and of itself. I don't know what I'm trying to say here. I think, I guess I'm trying to say is that when we look at culture, we look at it as a foreign concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, and we don't look at our own internal cultural yeah. programming, uh, yeah. whether you're white, the best brown, example, black. The best or, example yeah. is, is, a bi is a fish that finds another and asks, hey, how is the water there? And the other says, what water? Yeah. <laughs> That's a very good way what of water? putting it. What water? I'm breeding. So. <laughs> well, I mean, this has been a great discussion. Hopefully, we will have a whole lot of people listening to this program. And uh, for those who are listening, uh, what would you like to say to them about the immigrant experience, your own experience? I think one of the big things that, again, we have this podcast is to have conversations around these issues. So from your own personal and also professional experiences, what would you like to share with our listeners or how would you like them to, uh, to answer that question that goes in their mind of, should I ask about this or should I not ask about this? Or should I you know, approach this topic with this person from a different culture or should I not? I don't want to offend. I don't want to be offended. And what advice do you give to people who want to have, want to continue these conversations? These conversations are extremely important. I think that the, the value that I might bring to this conversation is how we transform that I into that we. Mm -hmm. It's very important. It has been very important to me. And I believe that the only way that we can both assimilate well to our new country and help the one that were here before us to understand us better is to actually engage with each other, mm -hmm. not being afraid, as you mentioned, to knock at the door, not being afraid of approaching others, not being afraid of seeking support where support might exist, mm -hmm. not succumbing to the isolation that comes with when you move from one culture to the other, not succumbing to that type of dysfunctional uh, behaviors that bring a lot of problems and transform what could be a very positive contributing experience, educating others, helping others to understand you and understand the context from where you came into something that is different. And many immigrants actually fall into that trap of mm -hmm. not reaching out. By reaching out, I haven't reached myself so much, my friend. That is great advice. And thank you so much for that. I actually want to go back to one quick little point when I asked you about what drives you. And it relates to this point that you just covered. So I think there's an important discussion in there. So you're obviously a, a driven person. You came here for education. You got two postgraduate degrees, a master's and a PhD. We see sometimes that 
the easier route is to just do my work and do what I need to do, go to my job, get my paycheck and not engage. Yep. Uh, but you chose That's the temptation. to engage. And it's, 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 there's comfort in that, I guess. Yeah. In the, in the and it's easier. Of, and it's, it's easier. easier. Yeah. But you made a choice to engage not only your work culture, but the broader community uh, you transformed through all that. Where is that drive coming from and what keeps you going? Personally, I, I come from a family that in my rural village back in the Dominican Republic uh, used to be at the forefront of social justice fights. That's very important to me, and it's a formative experience from my childhood and adolescence uh, that is, is crucial. Uh, then that fight for social justice have been with me as a student, as a father, as a husband, as a member of the community. And it drives me, and with each interaction and each commitment, it multiplies in a way that I don't think I will be bored, having so much to do. And as you get engaged, you notice that there is so much need out there to a further mm -hmm. engagement, and uh, it's a never-ending process, but it's an exciting one, my friend. So the excitement overcomes the exhaustion. Absolutely, that comes <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for being a guest on our program. Thanks for the work that you do in the community. And thanks for uh, sharing your so experience. Thanks for with the us. work that you do in our community, sir. The I and Immigrant is a production of WBOI Studios in Fort Wayne and was created by Ahmed Abdelmajid. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and keep these conversations going. You can find us on Facebook or visit theiinimmigrant.com to see additional content and pictures of this season's guests. Today's interview was produced by me, Katie Anderson, and edited by John Dawkins. Thanks for listening. From WBOI, Fort Wayne.